You're listening to 106.9 Tune FM and we're in the middle of a takeover at the moment. Hello. Hi. Hi. I'm Christina. (laughs) I'm Jennifer. And yes, we are taking over Tune FM today for International Women's Day. Um, So I'm Christina Kenny. I'm a sociology lecturer here at the University of New England in Armidale. And um, I also run a feminist reading group in the copious amounts of spare time that lecturers have here on campus. Um, And Jen is one of my fabulous colleagues and we've decided that um, we're going to have a bunch of our friends in over the course of the day talking about their research, talking about being women in the academy um, and talking about a whole variety of issues to do with Women's Day, um, including caring, librarians, um, art, women in the art world, philosophy, ancient history. Um, later in the afternoon, I'm going to be talking to um, people from Intersex Australia. I'm going to be talking to Ruby, who's a bisexual advocate. So it's going to be a jam-packed day full of new and interesting voices. So we're really glad that you could join us. Yeah, I'm really excited to be here and lo- so looking forward to hearing all the conversations during the day. And we're also going to be playing music by um, women and non-binary uh, artists today and, you know, intermittently telling you why we're, we're choosing those artists. I, I actually managed to program Laura Jean's Australia like straight up this morning, which is really exciting. She's a Melbourne-based artist who's running a campaign to get sort of more women on billings of festivals and, at, you know, to sort of break the sort of man-heavy music industry. Um, so she's kind of got this amazing music practice, but also an activist practice in that space as well. So Laura Jean, um, check her out. Awesome. Uh, so we're going to go to another talk break and then we're going to have a special guest on the phone. Yes, we've got, we're going to be talking to uh, my really good friend, Rachel Parsons, who's also the director of NIRAM, the New England Regional Art Museum. Oh, awesome. I saw her last night yes, at the art amazing. party. She's That's awesome. All right. No worries. We're going to a song now. It's I Owe You Nothing by Sainabo Say. You're listening to 106.9 Tune FM. You're back on air with The Takeover. Hi, I'm Christina and I'm here with Jen. And we're just about to introduce our first guest, who's um, a really good friend of mine, Rachel Parsons. She's an Australian curator who, for the last 12 years, has worked as an independent and institutional curator within university, commercial, public and artist-run spaces. And Rachel is currently based in the New England Regional Art Museum as the Art Museum Director. And we're really happy to have you on the line, Rachel. Good morning. Good morning. Happy International Women's Day. Thank you. You too. It's so great to hear your voice. Um, I know (laughs) we're meant to keep all of the kind of bears bones um, hidden. Oh, we just had a few like troubles getting Rachel on the phone. So it's very, very exciting. We've made contact. Extra exciting. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good way to start the day. Yeah, Yeah, we're all awake now. now. Um, So can you tell us a bit about about what you're doing um, at NERIM and why you're so passionate about women in art? Well, I think that, uh, I mean, my passion comes from a a personal place. I've always loved art. And um, whilst I was trying to become an artist, I I found that I um, was more adept and and more interested in actually providing opportunities for for other artists, perhaps, and and collaborating and working with other people. And so curating became a a way to do that. Um, And now I've been very fortunate to find myself at the helm of a fantastic institution here um, in Armidale. And so I'm, um, yeah, running this museum, which is amazing. It's a, yeah, it's a phenomenal um, experience. And so, I mean, you're in a very unique position, I guess, to kind of 
um, speak from regional Australia and perhaps also create a space where regional Australian art um, can really be foregrounded? Yeah, I think so. And that's one of the most exciting aspects of um, this role is that there's such fantastic things happening in the regions. There's great research, there's fantastic art and culture. And so we really get an opportunity to, to try and show that and to support that and to, to find the really exciting things that are happening um, and make sure that people know about it. And also then bring exciting things that are happening nationally to this place as well so that people who are living here have access to a whole range of things. Yeah, well, that dialogue is obviously really important. Um, Obviously, you know, um, urban Australia learning more about the country, but then also the country not feeling so cut off from those urban spaces where, um, you know, so much, I guess, of many of these discussions happen. Um, Yeah, absolutely. At the opening of the National Arts School show that you just had a couple of weeks ago, Rachel, the person or the representative, I can't remember the the lady's name from from NAS, Ellie, gave a really amazing speech, which was sort of like, wow, really cool things happen in the regions, you know, um, sort of an element of shock, but also pride in the fact that, you know, NIRAM is such a vibrant space. And I thought that was a really interesting, you know, it sort of reflected some of that sense that, you know, more stuff happens in the city than out in the regions, but then also the fact that the regions are really amazing places that we, we that are often overlooked by the city counterparts. Absolutely. And we hear that all the time. When people come and visit us, they're blown away by what we have. We have a fantastic collection, over 5,000 works of art, and our Howard Hinton collection is filled with, you know, the who's who of um, Australian artists from the early 20th century. And uh, we have a whole range of fantastic shows. And people often are surprised, but we're not surprised. We we know (laughs) that what we're doing here is... uh, uh, tapping into a whole heap of those uh, national conversations and discourses and that there's really exciting stuff happening. But it is great to, to be able to show that and to get that acknowledgement. No, that's fantastic. And can you tell us a bit about, I mean, part of the reason we did the takeover today was to um, to really emphasise the space, you know, spaces that women and non-binary folk need um, to talk about our issues and to, um, I guess, skew the world, you know, for a little while so that it's much more kind of... Um, I don't know. I guess non-patriarchally focused, perhaps, would be a good way to yeah, maybe sure. one way to put it. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit, a little bit about um, your role as a as a woman curator in Australia, and also the kind of um, mm. the absences, I guess, in in the kind of the the, the canon of um, of art over time. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really important to discuss because whilst we've seen some major um, improvements over the last few years in terms of um, attempting parity between male and female representation within the art world, there still is um, an historical lack of representation of women in the arts, um, especially in exhibitions and collections. Um, And this does definitely continue today. Um, The Countess Report is a fantastic uh, website and um, research that has been conducted um, over the last, I think, decade, which basically just counts uh, women in collections versus men in collections in major Australian arts institutions or women who are having solo exhibitions versus men having solo exhibitions and that kind of thing. And one of the key statistics to take away from that is that 74% of visual arts graduates are women, um, but only around 35 I think, to 40% of the main solo exhibitions 
uh, done by women. So you see this kind of um, disparity between the amount of women who engage in the arts and their ability to find success or representation within our major institutions. And that, you know, continues. It's getting better, but it does continue today. Yeah, well, thanks for that. That's actually, I mean, that's obviously a, a phenomenon that we've seen across many professions. I mean, I know for myself, um, the law profession is very similar, that there are a majority of women graduates coming out of uh, law schools in Australia, but very few of those women will go on to make partner or, um, you know, um, become a barrister. So it, it's it's really frustrating, I guess, that, you know, we're seeing those kinds of patterns across um, completely different kinds of industries. Um, yeah, what well, also, I mean, it seems an appropriate moment to acknowledge um, the the passing of Carolee Schneeman, the sort oh of formative God. feminist uh, performance artist. And, you know, I'd, I don't know if that name means uh, things to people that are listening in today, but uh, in the 70s, Carolee's most sort of iconic work is where she sort of has a scroll written um, of all criticisms from male critics saying her work's too feminine, her work's, you know, you know, not sort of serious enough, and she inserts that into her vagina and pulls it out in a kind of live performance. Um, and Carolee sort of lived a really long life and died less than 24 hours ago in the US. So it's sort of an appropriate moment, I guess, to reflect on that legacy. And, and I think that what you're doing, Rachel, is part of that legacy, actually. Absolutely. I mean, um, Carolee Schneeman was one of the artists that I loved when I was studying art at art school. She was um, such an influential uh, feminist and, and women artist. Um, in addition to her, her scroll work, one of her other major works was Meet Joy, which was this performance work, which really looked at um, the politics of the body and also the taboo around um, female sensuality and, and the female body is female body as well um, so this work was uh, a performance that was videoed and it had both um, semi-naked and and women and they were kind of rolling around in this massive uh, meat and fish and sort of kind of um, disgusting but also maybe erotic or um, a very provocative sort of performance and she was very much talking about that politics of the body and she continued to work all the way up to um, to the recent presence and yeah she died uh, at age 79 and that's such a huge contribution to the arts. Oh thank you for for, for that story as well. Um, I think that we are going to keep you on the line we need to throw to a song now um, which I've chosen <laughs> it's the Eurythmics Here Comes the Rain and I just wanted to um, say see you later I'm going to go listen to a talk that's happening over in um, Urala and I think you're going to stay on the line, Rachel. And later on today, I'm coming back to do a love song dedication segment between one and three with my uh, feminist environmental humanities reading group. So it'll be, uh, I'll see you back then and I'll leave you in the capable hands of Christina and all of the other guests in between. So here Fantastic. is Annie and here comes the rain. You're listening to 106.9 Tune FM. Uh, you're listening to 106.9 Tune FM, back on with The Takeover. Hi, I'm Christina and I'm here with my great friend Rachel Parsons, who's um, uh, currently based at the New England Regional Art Museum as the Art Museum Director. Hi, welcome back, Rachel. Hi, Christina. Um, I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what might be happening at NERIM at the moment. 
Well, there's two things that I think are particularly interesting to your audience today. One is our M&A exhibition, which um, was mentioned previously. It's of uh, recent graduates from the National Art School. Um, I selected that exhibition and quite accidentally, all of the artists are women, um, happily accidentally. That's fantastic. Uh, so, yeah, which is great. So they're... Um, Ten uh, or five undergraduates and five uh, postgrads who finished their study last year. So it's really bold, fresh, new contemporary art, which is a great show to come see. And the other thing is that on Sunday, March 10th, we have an All About Women satellite event. So it's streaming live from the Sydney Opera House and includes a whole range of fantastic panels and talks by um, women, uh, including a hashtag Me Too Year Two panel, an exclusive um, backstage speaker interview feminism in the arab world and leading while female so um come down to to Niram and uh, you can you can see what's happening at the opera house on sunday fantastic thanks so much rachel those events sound amazing i've seen i've been to emanate and it was absolutely a phenomenal show so um i really recommend Thank everyone get so down much. there while it's still while it's still going thanks so much for coming on the show this morning it was a pleasure to talk to you and i'm sure I'll see you soon fantastic you're so welcome have a great day thanks rachel you too uh, so I'm Christina, I'm here, um, I'm a sociologist here at UNE and I'm also, um, I also run a group here called the Feminist Reading Group um, and we're taking over Tune FM today for International Women's Day and I'm here, my next guest is um, Eleanor Kohler, she's a research librarian who spends their days talking about academic publishing, when and where to use metrics, how to archive data, searching Sci-Hub for articles because it's just so much easier, you'll have to tell us more about that Eleanor, I have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, and finding ways to mention cats and cardigans, I hardly approve in every conversation. Um, she generally walks 10,000 steps in a day but never drinks enough water. So welcome into the studio. Thanks, Christina. Hi, everyone. <laughs> um, so, Eleanor, can you, can you tell us why you wanted to become a librarian? Yeah, um, sure. Like, I mean, I like reading books and I like helping people, but... You know, and I am wearing a cardigan today. She so is. That's not yeah, even a lie. It's not even a lie, and it wasn't even on purpose. It's just part of my uniform. Um, but the main reason I became a librarian was because I like finding out information, particularly information that other people can't find. Makes that is me feel a very good. good feeling, isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah. good. It's like I'm a that's detective, why I like academia. but there's less running, less guns. <laughs> you don't get your clothes dirty. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, got to keep those cardigans fresh. <laughs> so, what did you find when you when you joined the profession? Um, I started, I guess I joined the profession when I started working in a research centre uh, when I was still a student myself before I went to library school. Mm -hmm. and <laughs> then, library school? Yeah, and then I went to library school. There right. is a school for librarians. Really? Yeah, not really. Oh, uh, kind of. It's, uh, I have it like Hogwarts? A little bit, a little bit. In the sense that we always had baked treats and played board games between classes, yes. which separated us from a lot of the other people in the building which I have a Master's of Information Management from mm -hmm. RMIT University, which is in the Business IT and Logistics School. So right. all of the business students thought we were just the weirdest. You could always tell who was at the library school. Because of the cardigans. Because of the cardigans, yeah. We, yeah, it was a fun time. Um, so I guess I found that there was a lot of stereotypes there, um, but there was also a lot of people breaking them, which was really, really good. And... I thought it was a fun time and then I entered librarianship as a profession and it's still a fun time and there are still individuals trying to break things which I enjoy. So but I mean obviously when you join you know when you come from university into professions hmm. um, I think mo maybe most people find that it's you know that 
that there's lots of things there that they didn't expect or maybe that um, that are disappointing about the mm. politics of their new spaces. I think university might yeah. be a space where um, you know, people are at least challenged to find new politics or challenge their own politics mm. where they might be a bit narrow. But then in the professions, I think maybe um, many young women, I want to say, and non-binary folk um, mm-hmm. find that the, the politics that they expected in their professions from university yeah. don't play out. Yeah, definitely. And I guess I've only worked in tertiary libraries. I've only worked at university libraries. So I definitely kind of am in that world very deeply um, and one of the disappointments I found is from academics who, and other professional staff, mainly academics, so who don't recognise librarianship as a profession. They're often surprised uh, and sometimes shocked that we have degrees, that we have academic conferences and journals that we publish in. They just think it's a pastime. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I it's guess... outrageous. A little bit, yeah. But, you know, and part of this is... As a profession and as individuals, librarians don't go out and we don't sell, sell ourselves very well. Is that is that part of the stereotype of quiet librarianship? Or? Yeah, I definitely think so. And I think in this context where academia is still majority male, librarianship is still majority female, and we are there to serve the academic community. And there's just a lot of layers to unpack there. Yeah, right. So you sort of have, you know, mm. you have that, like, that um, the, the continuing kind of patriarchal... Yeah. Um, hierarchies of professionalised yeah, employment. definitely. Yeah. And a big disappointment I found is that patriarchal system is still very much within librarianship. Even though we are a majority female profession, we still uphold these values in our leadership and our day-to-day work practices a lot, I find. Can you give us an example? Um, I don't know if you want to... <laughs> <laughs> you don't need to. If you don't no, to. okay. So, like, you know, vague statistics... Um, so our professional body is ALIA, the Australian Library Information Association. They release a lot of reports. They always talk about um, women. So in terms of li- librarians, as opposed to library technicians, as opposed to archivists, etc. Librarians is 82% female. Uh, they don't release leadership statistics, but the few stats floating around is that in libraries, about 60% of leadership and management positions are held by men. So that 18% of male librarians are getting pushed up the chain a lot faster. Yeah, wow. That's, yeah. A, that's a really, that's a huge disparity. Huge, yeah. And if you look at the American statistics, so the American Library Association, ALA, they do release a lot of those stats. Uh, and, you know, for them, 92% of librarians are white at one point. That was about 2013 stat. So it's a huge disparity between there. So not only are we looking at, lack of gender representation but we're looking at lack of lack of racial representation and I find a lot of this is reinforced with our hiring practices as well so for you to at certain libraries UNE is one of them to be able to get to a certain level of pay grade you have to have a master's degree you can't just have a bachelor or a grad dip or a technician's diploma so you have to be able to educate and have the money and resources to be able to do that yeah, and tertiary study only becomes increasingly expensive, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah definitely. Right. And it's a two-year master's program. Wow. A lot of people can't do that. No, no, definitely. Yeah, that's a, uh, yeah, that's a really onerous kind of program. Mm-hmm. Really yeah. rigorous. Yeah. Which is all the more irritating then when people don't people are surprised that you even have tertiary qualifications. Yeah. yeah. Right. Mm. I don't know. It's a bit frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's also, I guess, when people say, oh, you're a librarian, how cool was Dewey? So Melville Dewey, who's probably the most famous librarian. Yes, uh, who, for those of you who are unaware, 
Can you tell us what the Dewey system is? Yeah, so we've got the Dewey Decimal Classification System, the DDC, which is what is used at UNE Library. So, so when you go around the shelves and you're looking for that book that you yeah. honestly can't find for love or money, yeah. and you're looking through eight, you know, 820, yeah. 821A, 821B, mm-hmm. that's the Dewey system. Yeah, so my honours thesis on Australian cinema was in 791.4372. I will never forget that number. No, mine was in <laughs> mine was in <laughs> rom- the romantic, so it was eight. 821 to like 822. Yeah, Yeah. cool. So Dewey was the worst. He was racist. He was sexist. He was classist. He said women make great librarians because it's easy work. They don't need to be too smart. Fantastic. He classified Mm. pregnancy in diseases. He classified lynching in law enforcement. And he classified... um, so there's also like for literature, English, etc. That's around the 800s. That's mm. literature. Everything English related, Latin-based languages, can be found from the 810s to the 880s. So they've got 10 subsystems and then 10 within each of those 10, mm. right? Yeah. Every other language is in the 890s. So. <laughs> Wow. So this classification of knowledge and who has the power to classify knowledge and how we kind of receive those classifications Mm -hmm. seems to be really, um, you know, one of those hidden systems of, of, you know, maintaining power and control. It is. um, And reinforcing those hierarchies, even, I mean, long after his death, I assume. Yeah. And so these are updated about every uh, 10 to 15 years. So the Library of Congress in the US now, it takes ownership of the Dewey Decimal System and they create new headings. They've reclassified pregnancy. It's not now considered a disease. Uh, nor is homosexuality, which was also in a lot of the neurological diseases, pathological diseases, etc. Originally. Yeah. Wow. So it's all those yeah. hidden. This is these are the secrets that librarians mm, hold. We don't tell isn't you. It? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah. you just think you're going to find a book, you know, um, at, in the 820s, and I don't understand that I'm sort of participating yeah. in this. So this whole system of, of classification. Yeah, and, and, and there's a really control. interesting kind of. Uh, I guess, trend or uh, happening within librarianship of uh, self-censorship classification where people will purposely classify a book in an area so that it doesn't get read. That is something that can happen. Um, purely so if, some, if there's a teen book and it might be classified, get they'll get angry letters from parents for whatever reason, they might put it somewhere else. Or uh, an example that came from an Australian library, it was years ago now, it was about... Um, evangelical TV programs. They didn't classify it uh, as religion because they didn't want people looking at religion to find that because it was a criticism of it. So they put it in media, which sure you can argue that point, but the specific classification for that book was religion. Wow. We have so there you go. So yeah. this is why one of my favourite things before everything went into stack at Fisher, um, Fisher Library at Sydney University, mm. was walking down the shelves. And just picking stuff out. And yeah. picking stuff out. And I found so many amazing books that way. Yeah. Um, books that I didn't either, even, maybe books I didn't find on the catalogue. Mm-hmm. Or maybe I'd go to, f- I'd, I'd go to the catalogue, find l- see a book that I wanted to find, mm. couldn't find it. Yeah. Found and then else. found three other books that were adjacent yeah. on, on the shelf. Yeah. Um, this is why yeah. having physical books is very good. Oh, it's it's such an amazing yeah. experience. I have such no, such nostalgia for um, yeah. for Fisher Stack. Definitely. Yeah. Um, and yeah, but yeah, critical cataloging is a subset of librarianship, uh, and it's a very important field. I find I do have nothing to do with cataloging at any point in my library career except for that one subject I did at library school, um, <laughs> but it is important and it is a way to censor. Yeah, it is. Which well, thank you for shedding some light on that because <laughs> right. I I mean I've been working in libraries and as in the academy for a really long time. Yeah. Um, and I never knew that. Mm. So thanks for coming on the show. No worries. No worries. All right. Well, we're going to go to a song now. It's No Room for Doubt by Leanne Lahavas. Is that right? <laughs> 
I hope so. Um, then surely we'll, I won't mind. <laughs> we'll swing to the news and then we'll be right back with The Takeover. You're listening to 106.9 Tune FM. Maybe I'll learn too many things unspoken. And you're listening to Tune FM and I'm back with The Takeover. Hi, I'm Christina and I'm here in the studio today as part of uh, the Feminist Reading Group's International Women's Day Takeover. Um, and I'm here with my next guest, Annette Messel, who's been working at the UNE Library since early 2017. Before that, she worked at QUT Library in Brisbane. And her specialties are law librarianship, um, and she's the national convener of the Australian Library and Information Association's Students and New Graduate Group, which promotes networking and professional development. Recently, Annette has developed an interest in cultivating indoor plants, which is a great hobby for Armadale because <laughs> all my plants die nine months of the year, and dreams of owning a puppy one day. That's it. That's it. So my welcome plants. to the studio. Thank you. <laughs> Th- thanks for coming in, Annette. It's all um, so we've just been talking to Eleanor about how she became a librarian. I was wondering if you could maybe tell us a little bit about how you guys are different kinds of librarians. Oh, okay. So how did I become a librarian? So I, you know, did my usual undergrad degree. It was just like an arts degree. The best kind of degree. (laughs) Yes, the best kind of degree. What did I, I majored in religious studies and creative writing. Religious history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and film for me. Yeah. Um, And then I was like, what do I do? What do I do? So I decided to become a high school teacher. So I did my grad dip and I got to the end of that and I was like, no. I do not, I can't, I can't do this. And so I went and I traveled for a year and I lived in Korea and taught English over there. And then I came back and I was like, I've got to do something. And then, so I decided to become a librarian, which is funny. Cause I think when I talk to a lot of other librarians, like it's not necessarily something that they want, they do like from a young age. They don't like mm. wake up and at 12 and be like, oh, I want to be a librarian. It's yeah. always something like, it's like a second profession. It's not like I want to be a fireman and then yeah, a subsection of those it. people actually become firemen. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. 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 So that's why you all have traumatizing Fire experiences from our <laughs> high school librarians. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe that's it. Maybe we actually kind of, um, uh, we carried those experiences of being in the school library or. I always loved know. my school library though. Mm. I liked the place. library. I don't know what the librarians did, but I guess the students I helped now probably say the same thing. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like we were saying before, there's all those secret, that secret librarian's yeah. business that you guys, mm. you guys get on with, with your cataloging. And mm. No, we yeah. don't do any cataloging. Well, I was saying the profession. No. The profession. Oh, the profession. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Organising the books. Organising mm. the books. Yeah. So what kind of librarian so, are you? So if you compare me and Eleanor, so I'm what you call a teaching and learning librarian. Mm-hmm. So my kind of day-to-day job is like on the ground assisting students, you know, teaching students things like search strategies and how to search database and how to kind of think a little more critically about the information that they're using for their assignments. Yeah, wow. That's so important. Yeah, it is. It is. And so, Eleanor, I think, how would you explain your role is different to mine? Mm, I guess uh, I take what Annette has instilled in students in their undergraduate degrees and if they go on to become postgraduates or academics, that's when I assist them with their research and everything that goes around being an academic these days. So I generally think, you know, Annette and I have similar degrees of sort of information management. We manage all of that information. So it used to be that librarians managed information in terms of books and Mm. volumes. We now manage information in terms of people. Yeah, wow. So it's kind of, you think the profession's moved more towards being a service or more of a sort of customer service facing role? So between students and academics? Yeah. I mean, I think uh, traditionally, I think people think of librarians as 
I guess, gatekeepers information. So yeah. we hold all that information, you know, behind a desk, behind a closed wall. But that's really, it's kind of flipped right now. And so mm. we're teaching people how to be able to access yeah. that information. So for we're themselves. holding the ladder as you try and climb over the wall. Oh, oh that's, that's a good analogy. Metaphor. Holding the ladder. Yeah. yeah. I like that. Yeah. I, I like mean, that. sure, like I might trip it a bit just so you know it's shake it's not that easy for you but like that's the power that i have as a librarian (laughs) the idea was to make this sort of to demystify not to make librarians more like sure there's a door a few meters down the wall but you don't know that (laughs) you're just like over the fence just yeah yeah, just get it climb higher (laughs) great well that's just i have to fill my day somehow Well, so maybe maybe we could swing it back around to sure. um, to demystifying the library because I think mm-hmm. I mean this is a really good juncture, right, to talk about um, maybe talk about I mean I think a lot of um, a lot of first year students and and students at UNE um, are coming back to either coming back to uni from a really long break mm-hmm. or um, are the first people in their family to go to university um, or you know or and themselves are coming to the university for the first time. So um, for me, who's been you know in been an undergrad and then you know a postgrad for a really such a long time um and now i'm you know i'm now i'm lecturing you know like libraries are actually quite familiar spaces to me and i find yeah. them quite comforting you know mm-hmm. like I, and i think that that idea of spaces as being um being comforting or being welcoming you know is really important and i know that, that the une library has done a lot lately to um to reach out to students and make those spaces more comfortable mm, we have a kitchen now yeah, yeah no it's amazing <laughs> yeah, yeah i've never it's been great for women to it's come and be able to heat up their lunch in the kitchen yes it is good <laughs> Because yeah. there's so few places on campus to do that. Yeah, have a sneaky nap on the couch there. Yeah, yes. we've all been there. They're, nice. Yeah, they're comfy. Yeah. Those couches, comfy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but you did have a whole outreach program, right? Yeah, we do. And I guess one of the other stereotypes of librarianship and librarians is that we're neutral, mm. uh, and that is definitely a trigger word for me. Um, do, can you explain a bit more what you mean by neutral? Yeah. So traditionally, people, oh, librarians and libraries, they have all the information. They don't, you know, put something behind a closed wall. It's all there in the library. But what's actually going on is people are choosing which books to purchase, which books actually enter the library. Yes. Mm. Going back to how they're catalogued, that changes who can access them a lot as well. And going back to kind of those stats of where majority white, majority female, majority mm. middle class, majority Christian, majority English speaking... Mm-hmm that is not neutral uh it is often seen as being neutral <laughs> but it's not yeah well mm. it might be normative but it's not neutral exactly right yeah or what we what we think is neutral is actually just yeah the norm. so yeah. kind of going back to dewey he was great at classifying a sort of 19th century cishet white male view of the world christianity can be found in nine of the ten different uh sections um wow. but all other religions are a subset of one just wow. as with it's Latin like, based it's languages. like world music yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Or foreign language films. Yeah. Yeah. So we're definitely not neutral. We're not a neutral space where anyone can kind of come in and feel at home. I think there was like there, there was wasn't there that case in America where, like you know, like a neo-Nazi group had booked yeah. out a space in a public library. in a public library. Yeah. And so that brought up this discussion: if a library is so supposed to be a safe space for everybody to come, mm. should they be allowing you know that kind yeah. of you know group to book a room or yeah. whatever in that and space you know there's also a lot of public libraries now have 3d printers mm-hmm. so people can 3d print a plastic gun that shoots real bullets wow okay so is that something do we have a policy on that we should <laughs> yeah i can't believe we don't have a policy on that yeah. policies are so far behind technology i find so yeah. much yes. of the time yeah. i mean just on that point um about uh you know all the ways that that you know that knowledge is 
um, controlled by library spaces, mm. you know, um, produced and controlled by library spaces. Mm. Um, as an academic, you know, we um, we need to be really conscious as as authors and you know producers of knowledge that um, that the same kinds of hierarchies right exist in getting into publications as well. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of critique, you know, um, quite well founded critique from um, from my area, which is so I work on Kenya. Um, and and Eastern Africa, and there are a lot of academics on the continent, on the African continent, mm. who routinely are denied visas to come to conferences in Australia and the UK, um, who find it much more difficult to get published in um, the top journals in their fields, mm. and there is a real um, uh, there are real problems there in in access and representation in the academy. Mm. You know, at, at the level of production of knowledge, mm-hmm. and so once you kind of once that's filtered through all these other you know all these other systems of um, of um, curation and control mm-hmm. you know you can really see that what we have access to in the library um, feels broad to us in a way because even so like if I log onto a, a database and and you know keyword search for my topics there, there are too many articles for me to read you know yeah. so in that sense I, c- I don't get a sense of the limits of the knowledge that I have access to sure. so it's really interesting to kind of um, yeah to see the way that all these databases are built and also to come from the side of actually contributing to those databases um, you know what kinds of limitations we find mm-hmm. um, in the way that we, yeah, in, in the way that we produce knowledge and the way that we receive it um, critically. So I think, as students and as academics, um, you know, and obviously as librarians, um, it's great to be aware of all these kinds of all these kinds of issues and start to seek out more actively mm. um, voices that perhaps we don't we we're not used to seeing or perhaps you know we're not seeing very much in the academy, That's which awesome. is exactly why. Uh, the feminist reading group has had this takeover today because yeah. I wanted to sort of make a space for all these new stories and you know uncover the secrets of librarians. So yeah. this has been a fantastic <laughs> discussion. It's <laughs> cool. No cool. worries. Uh, we're going to throw to a quick song now. It will be "This Will Be an Everlasting Love" by Natalie Cole. You're listening to 106.9 Tune FM. Good chat. You're listening to 106.9 Tune FM, back with The Takeover. Yes, we're back. I'm Christina. I'm a sociology lecturer here at UNE, and I'm here with my two guests, Eleanor and Annette from UNE Library. And we've had a fascinating conversation so far about the secrets of librarians and libraries and um, the politics of cataloguing and the generation of knowledge, which I find fascinating. So what we're going to do now, instead of delving into the depths of the secrets of the library, we're going to do the opposite. Um, And I wanted to ask you both, what are some of the things that new students or people who might never have been to an academic library, you know, what what should they expect and how can they make it, you know, um, uh, how can they sort of find the courage to walk into the library for the first time? Mm, I think... I think if you try and frame it in the way that the library really is here to help you and if you're writing an assignment, if you're writing an essay, you're going to need resources to do that. Yes. And so how can you find those resources in the most you know, efficient, time effective way? It's to come to the library, learn how to do those searches. Don't you know think that you um, have to stumble around and try and sort it out for yourself. Like we're really here to help so students. So it's not like doing a Google skills. search? It's not just doing a Google search, although we do use Google Scholar. Mm-hmm. It's a good yeah. resource to use. Um, but you know, like we deal with these databases and these search strategies every day. We know little tips and tricks to help mm. students get along. So, so when I you think, say, sorry, when you yeah. say databases, databases, can you? Where are the? Where are the databases? Where are the databases? 
Where are they? So they're on the library homepage. Right. We've got an A to Z data list under the purple library search bar. So if you go to une.edu.au forward slash library, yeah. all of our stuff is there, including, you know, we've got workshops that we have for on-campus students, but we also simultaneously uh, broadcast, you know, via Zoom online to off-campus students. Oh, fantastic. So we run classes kind of concurrently mm-hmm. um, on how to do search strategies and things like that. And I think, you know, uh, also, so yesterday I took a class for a specific unit. So in that unit, I talk about search strategies and things like that. So you'll find librarians popping up. Mm-hmm. So sorry, can I? Yeah, you, t- you took a class for a specific unit. Yeah, so I took a yeah. So, so academics can, can about ask that? about for libraries to come into their class. So I didn't know that. I yeah. know. Can you come into my class? Yeah. I teach Soci 100, which okay. is Introduction to Sociology. Sure. And a lot of my students are in exactly the position we were talking about before. They're first time on campus yep. or first time back studying or, you know, um, first person in their family to go to university. Mm. So I would love for you guys to come in. Let's and, do it. Um, just like we've done a feminist takeover here at um, Tune FM, I'd love for you guys to do yeah. a, a librarian takeover. We definitely do that. Classes. Yeah. Yeah. That's so exciting. It's useful. It's, and it's kind of like if you, you know, put, the, put a little bit of work in now, lay the groundwork, you know, it's just going to make your so much easier yeah. yes, as you go through exactly studies. true and the more you do it the better you get right it's exactly. all about practice and familiarity especially and especially you know in your specific subject area so we have so many different databases on so many different topics um you know that are arguably better than google scholar um you know if you learn what those databases are and how to use them like it's just it's just going to do your benefit. Yeah, and so it's not when, yeah. it's not like when you log into the database page at, at in the library, mm. you don't have to go through every database, right? You just have to learn yeah. which two or three databases are best for your field. Exactly. And then learn how to use those. Yep. So it's not about kind of you don't have to understand everything about the library or know what's on every floor or no. you know, you just need to know your little bit of the um now we've learned incredibly suspect Dewey system. <laughs> um, yes. And also you need to figure out which databases are best for you exactly. and which is only going to be like a small fraction of what the library has access exactly. to and then you've got to figure out how to use them that's it and yeah. it's not going to take you that long all databases are kind of same same but different so once you get the the base understanding down you're set yeah. fantastic i'd encourage students as well to um ask questions we don't have a job if people don't ask questions exactly so that's so what i always preface you know yeah. like my classes with is mm. that if you decide to tune out for the next 20 minutes while i talk at you um i always tell students you know you can contact the library librarians mm. at any time so we've got a chat service we've got phones mm-hmm. you can send us an email you can book an appointment with us people contact us on twitter yeah on Facebook social media wow. like you know so there are so many different avenues that you can contact us at so many yeah. different times there's always going to be somebody who's going to reply to you. So mm-hmm. just take advantage of that. We literally are here to help. Yeah, yeah fantastic. So if you're there writing your assignment, yeah. um, not the night before because no one does that, <laughs> but say <laughs> no you were writing it, you are very organised, you are writing it two nights before and yeah. you tweeted the library at two o'clock in the morning yeah. and you had 24 hours left on your assignment. So you go to sleep and you wake up in the morning and yeah. some, some it's me. friendly it's librarian. Look, it's Eleanor. Uh, yeah, at it's the moment Eleanor. it's me and right. I get up at about 5am Good Lord. and I can check it then. Yes. That's when I get up. Oh my if you tweet me at about 9pm, probably won't get it. Uh. No, well, but that's when I do all my best work. But yeah. but see, yeah, so I could panic text you at, you know, tweet yeah. you at 2am um, at yeah. and then you'd get it in the morning and I'd, I'd have an answer. I'd have someone to talk to about how to find my yeah. answer exactly. in the morning. Yep. That's fantastic. Facebook as well. We've got yep. a Facebook page. Yeah, That's lot amazing. Of stuff. I can't believe, yeah, We've I just wrote all my assignments. Yeah. By we have my, a library blog where there's heaps of stuff on there that you can go through and find out about yeah. more stuff more stuff yeah but it's very much you ask questions 
and we will try our best to answer them, right? So when Christina asked me why I got into librarianship yeah. at, you know, 9.37 this morning, and I said it's because I like finding information, like you asking questions allows me to do that. Yeah, and oh. I, get, I bet you find out a whole bunch of stuff that you didn't so know before much, as well. So much, particularly helping academics and postgraduate students with their quite niche research. Mm-hmm. It's not niche, everybody I know, I'm great East at Africa. trivia nights. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Help me get better at trivia now. We <laughs> so kill it white ball trivia. There's yeah. a group of four of us librarians. We oh, go. Yeah, that's we why we should never go to the same it. trivia. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I once won Noted. the Queensland's Alia State Trivia for librarians. Oh the team goodness. I was with. Imagine a whole room of librarians. librarians and I mean, I was disappointed because I thought it would be library trivia. Like, what is What's this classification or like, <laughs> yeah well that would be all right um and then like you know what's the most sold fiction book ever or like author which is agatha christie by the way is it really yes oh, it is excellent um that's good fact. for women's but day it excellent. wasn't it was just general just general trivia, trivia which you know which my team still anyway. won <laughs> but yeah it was a good time <laughs> well uh i think we might wrap it up so thank sure. you so cool. much no eleanor worries, and Annette, for coming into the studio with us today it was a great pleasure and i this is amazing like in the first to well hour and a half of the show I've learned so many things <laughs> um, and I'm definitely going to have a library takeover of my yeah, Sassy 100 class so mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah so stay tuned for how that goes I guess um, yeah thanks guys we're going to no throw to a song and uh, we'll be back after this cool thanks coming Thank up you. next you have Replay by Zendaya you're listening to 106.9 Tune FM Hi, and welcome back to uh, the Tune FM uh, Feminist Reading Group Takeover. I'm Christina, I'm a lecturer here in sociology, and I'm here with three of my amazing colleagues, Richard Scully, uh, Felicity Joseph, and Joanna Garnett. Uh, Richard's an associate professor in modern European history, and he's always been interested in the history of cartoons and cartooning, and most recently has made some interventions on the Mark Knight Serena Williams controversy, if any of you caught those horrific cartoons in the press. Um, He came to UNE 10 years ago from Monash, um, and since then, he's entirely changed his worldview from a conservative middle-class Catholic schoolboy, which sounds intriguing, to something <laughs> hopefully a little bit better. And he has two boys, Paddy and Arthur. Um, and like everyone here on the panel today, uh, excluding myself, uh, is juggling parenting and work. Felicity is a casual lecturer in continental philosophy here at UNE. She's got a doctorate in philosophy from the University of Melbourne. And she's really interested in feminist interpretations of phenomenology and existentialism, and you'll have to help us with those. Maybe Felicity, <laughs> when we yeah, when we talk about it in the next segment, uh, where Felicity's talking to one of our other colleagues here, Sarah Lawrence. So that, we'll just put that on hold, but it's going to be amazing. Her other job um, is caring for her four-year-old, and she likes to make stuff like knitting and sewing. So that's a great that's a great mix there, existentialism to knitting. I yeah, think they go good, together really well. Um, a good combination. And our um, third panelist is Joanna. She's a lecturer in peace studies political studies, sociology and criminology. She's been at UNE since 2006, initially as an online mature age student and then as a PhD student and she's been lecturing and teaching for the last five years. Um, Her research interests are Myanmar and grassroots peacebuilding initiatives, youth, gender, globalisation and social movements for alternative development and ways of being. And in her spare time, you guys can have a chat about this maybe, she makes beautiful patchwork quilts gardening and bushwalking so thank you the three of you for coming in um, and chatting with us today for the for feminist um, reading group takeover but here actually although you all do amazing academic work we're here to talk about the ways that you guys are juggling um, your family lives and responsibilities with your working lives so i wonder if um, joanna might like to start us off here 
Uh, thanks, Christina, and thanks for this opportunity, Tune FM, for uh, us to have a voice on this International Women's Day. Uh, yeah, I started at UNE in 2006 um, as a mature age student. I came to UNE because it was at the time the only institution in Australia that offered psychology online and that I could actually juggle work life um, and family with my study. Uh, but that obviously had its challenges. I was a single mum with three teenagers, quite young teenagers, who you know were sort of suffering from this marriage breakdown. And uh, yeah, so it was um, certainly a challenge. I did that for, gosh, juggled full-time study and full-time work for nearly eight years. And While in those you were a full-time <laughs> carer for three children. Yes. Yeah, wow. So <laughs> when did you do, do your study? Uh, yeah, so in those days we used to have to come up twice a year for res schools. Yeah. So, yeah. So in the morning I'd wake up before the children. So uh, what time would that be? Six o'clock. So okay. with teenagers. I don't think with young children that's a possibility. I was going to say, as a teenager I would never get up at six o'clock. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So um, I'd be up at six and you can get a lot of reading done at six in the morning um, and in these days we're even looking at you know prior to technology like we we didn't have online Moodle we just had reading books and CDs and DVDs wow so yeah. they were posted out to you from yeah they were posted out because yeah. you know when I was when I was a um, uh, in year 12 I did a distinction course for the HSC mm. that was a, um, a course by distance and I actually it was run with UNE and UNSW and I actually mm. realized now that like years ago even before I went to university I was using the distance programs here that are offered that the UNE offers, so they've always been at the forefront of that kind of um, that kind of accessible yeah, yeah accessible learning. Absolutely, and and in a way, in those days, because you weren't tied to technology, it was you could take it with you. So I would take my reading with me. So I'd get up early in the morning, I'd have that first hour or two to myself, and then it would be late at night. So it was my social thing. I didn't go out. Um, and so it was a good way of spending my time, really. I had children, but we were all studying together in a way. But I could take my reading to the beach. My son was a mad keen surfer, so I would take all my readings and I'd sit under a tree and read for hours. Oh, that sounds... And sound, you're not making it sound as difficult as it, it, sound, it probably was. You know, like <laughs> you're like, well, I, I did a lot of reading at the beach. And, yeah, yeah, it wasn't that hard. And you'd write your notes, pencil and paper. Um, and then I had uh, CDs, so they would mail out CDs. And when I, I used to have to commute 40 minutes a morning, well, that's a lecture. So I would listen to the lectures in the car on the way to work. Wow, so it sounds like you're a mad, you know, like you're really, really good at organising your time and finding spaces in the day that worked for you yeah. and then finding the resources that you could you could consume mm -hmm. at that time, right? So you can't Absolutely. read while you're in the car, but you could definitely yeah. listen to a lecture or yeah. a podcast or something. And I think it is about being creative with our time, and we all know that as parents, um, women, parents, everybody. It is about time management. And uh, now as an academic, uh, I'm seeing this now, so I'm, I'm lecturing and, and we have a huge online cohort, obviously, and mature age students like myself and women like myself. And I can really empathise with the challenges of this time management. Uh, so it's something I feel that I can help students with. Yeah, it's um, fantastic for them to mm. have, have people who've, who've, who are going through this kind of, mm. um, you know, juggling caring responsibilities and bringing up your families and yeah. um, with, with really serious academic studies. So it's great to have, you know, to have lecturers on campus. I mean, we, we you know, um, I think actually maybe it's more about making them visible. I think a lot of academics have for a long time not felt able maybe to talk about it. Mm. Um, yeah, what, what do you think, Felicity? Do you think mm. that this is something that's only just coming up now? Or? Yes, I think uh, I was actually talking about this with Joanna the other day and um, I think it's really good that parents of both genders are kind of 
coming forward and saying, yeah, I've got kids and, you know, I need to leave at a certain time or I need to, you know, I need to meet my commitments or I need to be home today to look after them when they're sick. And the thing is, our students are often in the same place and particularly at uni because um, we've got students from all walks of life and, um, and a lot of mature age students. And so um, I actually think being a parent can make you a better academic. You can be more efficient with your time and... Um, it's it's not a it's not a drawback anyway, and I think um, the more we're open about it, then um, I think the more uh, comfortable some of our students can feel because they're trying to balance you know their their um, family duties and caring duties with their study as well. So um, yeah, I think the culture's changing. I think it could change more, and I know it's something um, like in my discipline philosophy, um, it's something gets talked about a little bit because there's so few women that um, there is a little bit of a culture of kind of being professional means not mentioning your family sort of thing. And I think that kind of is changing, but it needs to change more. Yeah, well, mm. that's, I mean, that kind of feminist politics of, you know, bringing the whole person into pub, into um, public spaces and in professional mm. spaces, I think is something that we're, we're maybe getting better at now. Mm. That people are more, so. I mean, I think it's, we've definitely seen it in terms of sexuality and gender identity as well, mm. where people are more, um, you know, being professional was was performing a kind of normative identity, yes. or, or at least hiding the parts of you that were freakish or queer, yes. or you yes. know that you didn't, you were afraid people wouldn't mm. understand. Yes. Um, and maybe parenting, I think, even though it's, um, you know, it's not um, unusual, you know, like it's, it's obviously probably much more normative in in, in its practice. Yes. Um, yes. But it's certainly been a hidden kind of part of the politics of of the academy, and you That's know, this right. kind of mm-hmm. the burdens of publishing and. Um, mm. You know, mm. to keeping up your teaching commitments and, mm. and working on your own research while you know mm. balancing all this stuff, people are just—I I think maybe it's only recently that academics are more free to say, "Well, yeah, I mean, I didn't publish so much in that mm. five-year period because I just had a baby." Yes, you know? <laughs> that's um, a good excuse. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's definitely up there with the more time-consuming um, you know, um, things to happen in your life. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, how about you, Richard? I think you have a bit of a different experience, maybe. Than well, yeah, I, I suppose I do because mm-hmm. I, well, but just listening to everything that people are saying, it's it's. It echoes a lot. I mean, the idea that you can actually become really, really, really strict with your time. I mean, Felicity and I were just talking about this before, that I've, the last few years at least, with a seven-year-old now, he was seven on Monday. (laughs) Oh, happy birthday. Um, I can't believe that time's gone. But uh, And then a four-year-old as well who's very precocious and always likes to push every button he can find. Um, but, But you do manage to hive off your time. So I don't... I don't do anything between nine and five. And a few years ago, before having been forced into this sort of situation of being this, because I was a single parent for a long time, um, forced into that strict routine for myself so that I could look after my kids properly or do it at, at least what I felt was enough, although you can never do enough apparently. Um, <laughs> Well, at least you can't you know, feel like you can do enough. Well, that's the other discourse, isn't it? it I mean, is. I think I think the uh, academics and parents both feel, in different ways, that you're no, you're never doing enough. Yeah. So perhaps that the holding those two identities is something that. Yeah. You know, and sometimes really they clash really badly, <laughs> and you end up having, well, a lot of time off from everything. But um, yeah, just trying to cordon off that that time. A few years ago, I would never have been able to do that because I just let my job bleed into my life and vice versa. But. Um, it's it's you know it's one of the benefits of having kids is that they do sort of give you an excuse to not be the superhuman parent um, and superhuman professional in that sort of a way. Um, but yeah, it's 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 just it just keeps echoing back the same sort of 
things. But then I suppose, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bloke. So being a good parent, I've found ever since Patrick was born, you know, 2012, I always get this inordinate amount of praise um, that my female friends and my partner just don't get because it's there's this assumption that for some reason, oh, you're on babysitting duty today, are you, Richard? I'm like, no, I'm his parent. <laughs> I'm parenting him today. Uh, but then the attitude for you know, my, my late wife or, or my partner is always, oh, yeah, that's your job, you know. You're yeah. just you're just doing what you should be doing. So it's the, the feminist cookie s- syndrome, right? When when men stand up for feminism or when men are, are good parents, um, you know, there's there's an extra inordinate amount of praise. And when women are feminists or good parents, people are either irritated or critical. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm generalizing. Well, yeah, critical, like yeah, is that yeah. is that something the panel can relate to? This kind of um, <laughs> double standard in. Yes, yeah, those, those assumptions about, it just, a, yeah, this, this high standard that's set for women generally. And it's wonderful that men are so involved in parenting these days because they should be, as, as Richard was saying, it's, you know, you're the parent as well. But, um, yeah, there's that, that definitely that, that double standard that we observe every day, I think. Yeah, yeah definitely. Sorry. <laughs> We're just going to throw to a quick song and we'll yep. be right back. I've been walking down this road for about 35 years now and I can tell you it's been one um hi and welcome back to uh Tune FM's feminist radio takeover I'm here with our amazing panelists Richard Felicity and Joanna and we're talking about juggling parenting and working as academics or working you know working generally but we all happen to be in the rather rarefied space of academia so that's what we're talking about today but I think it's also good because even if we're if you're a professional academic or you're a um, a fuller part-time student who has caring responsibilities and it doesn't even need to be um, you know it's not only people who who have children or who are the primary carers of children it's also people who are caring for their spouses and loved ones who have um, you know ongoing or acute Um, illness or disability and we know that I mean certainly last year when I was teaching I had a lot of students um, who were doing an amazing job feeling you know um, attending class doing their assignments and then also writing to me um, and explaining a little bit about their situation and the things that people are, are, are juggling in their personal lives while they're trying to study and while they're trying to work are sometimes really intense so I also just wanted to make the point um, for any students who are listening, that a lot of people are um, sometimes struggling really hard with with a lot of you know really serious um, uh, a lot of really serious events that happen in people's lives. And study seems like it just kind of barrels over the top of all of those things. Or mm-hmm. work seems like maybe it, you know um, it demands a lot of time and priority. So we're here just talking about, I guess, some of the ways that we juggle those um, those constant demands because they're both you know they're both important. And I think we both we. Um, can derive a lot of self-esteem from our work and doing good work and, you know, um, coming to work and being with good colleagues, but also obviously our family identities are really critical as well. So now we're just going to talk a little bit about, a little bit about moving between headspaces, uh, which is something I think academics and students um, face a lot. So moving between really theoretical, um, you know, technical concerns to whapping vomit um, <laughs> off the front of your jumper. <laughs> so <laughs> I wonder if Joanna might like to... Um, say something first. Yeah, and, and I think it's as equally important carving out space for your mind as it is for your body and material needs. And so we talked about time management before, but it is about 
headspace and um, I was talking to Felicity she has a four-year-old and as she was saying and she'll explain you know going between a four-year-old and I think Richard has a similar experience and then having to come and lecture or um, you know present papers at conferences um, with those concerns for family concerns in the back of your mind always and that transition so I think we also need to carve out headspace for ourselves whether that's taking yourself away from the family or saying to your children and I was lucky because I had teenagers and we always had this thing where you sat around and we always had a family dinner around the dinner table and I always had extended you know visitors and whatever so we had some great conversations and I also had my two daughters were at university while I was doing my master's and PhD so we could discuss things and um, I was always really really jealous of my eldest daughter who could cram an HD into a one night you know she'd stay up do an all-nighter and then present an HD paper at six in the morning whereas I would just like struggle <laughs> for, for it so we're all different we are all different and we're all studying different things and we're all coming at it differently. Um, so it is really important. And it's difficult when you're an external student because you might not have anybody to discuss rules theory or um, sociological theory of the family with. Um, so utilise us, utilise your peer group online in the online forums as much as Yeah, that's as a great possible. point. Thanks, Joanna. Yeah. I also just wanted to pick up on something um, about the way that your children actually, you know, you were modelling, um, you know, further study and, mm. and, and work life, you know, that kind of work life balance, not, mm. not in the fact that you had maybe had a great work life balance, mm. but that you're, that you're giving yourself permission to pursue, mm. um, you know, things that were really important to you and to pursue yeah. a career. And yeah. I think a lot of, um, I might be speaking a little bit out of turn, but I think a lot of, um, certainly a lot of women that I speak to with young children often worry that they're not spending enough time with their children mm. um, because they're focusing on their career. But I, I feel like maybe, maybe the panel could respond to this idea of like modeling what you want your children's lives to be as well you know that um that watching your mother study and work hard and succeed at, at a profession is also something that's an important um important yeah. lesson for your children to kind of learn yeah 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 i think um yeah and there's a gender comes into that a little bit too um so i have a little boy who's four and um and he's had to learn, like, from when he's quite young, you know, mummy has a work and things she has to do or prepare for teaching and so on. And um, and kids can be quite clingy with their mothers when they're young and so that, you know, he, he can sort of, you know, push back a bit against that a bit. And But he's kind of um, come to an understanding that, you know, that's that's something mummy has to do as well as daddy. And, um, and also kind of understanding that, there's other aspects to your life and so yes like mother is one role I play but I also play other roles and and I think it's good for kids to kind of see that and also to understand that um, there is a relationship perhaps between work and the fact that they've got food on the table yes. <laughs> the fact that we've got a roof over our hands and yeah, all that sort of thing kind of material everything's yeah. sort of bound up <laughs> not together. too early to learn that like yeah. it's good um, so yeah I think that's um I think that's an that's something that we really can positively model for our children whether it be study or work or just doing something for ourselves like showing that there is another role um, besides the parent and and for them to understand that you're a whole person and maybe be a little bit more realistic with what they expect you know we can't be eternally available to our children all the time it's just not possible so. yeah and is that, <laughs> is that also an expectation not only an expectation that children have of their parents but maybe it's something an expectation that parents are encouraged to have of themselves yes yeah we all I think 
hold ourselves to ridiculously high standards. I don't know why that is. It's hard to resist it. It's kind of in the air. It's in the society that we live in. But, you know, it's, you know, parental guilt is a thing. Like, yes. <laughs> or it certainly is for me sometimes. I try to resist it because I kind of know what's going on there. But um, it's one thing to be aware of those factors. It's another thing to actually, you know, resist them. <laughs> well, especially as, 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 um, as an academic yourself, you know, mm. it, we're, we're used to being very self-critical, I mm. think, and very kind of... Um, analytical about the about mm. our values and other people's values mm. and where those values come from, mm. but it's really interesting to see that um, that it hits up for me as well. I mean, in, in a different way. Mm. Um, but it, you know, my my feminist politics often mm. hit up against my emotions, yes. right? Or um, I can't really explain why I feel a particular way, and I feel mm. it really strongly. And it's yeah. like I, I think that kind of the tension in the academy is, or you know, it <laughs> yes. should be. Well, yeah, it, it's there maybe more often than we would like that, yes. that our politics or our you know intellectual kind of rigor. Yeah. Um, it doesn't always make it through to our emotions. Yes, yeah, and it's good to talk about it for that reason, I think. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, how about you, Richard? Yeah, and look, uh, you know, coming from the background as a historian, I keep thinking about a uni as it was founded. It was a monastic institution, all male, with no family connections, no ties. Oh, that's to an excellent point. That would, we'd get so much work done. You would get so much work done, but, uh, you know, it's not anymore. Um, and despite what the sort of model academic is who can apply for this research grant and afford to hike it over to the UK for six months of their life and not have to worry about looking after a family or anything. That's just not real. You but know, it's also it's that, that pressure of um, maybe particularly in history um, and, and working in Australia as well, you know, um, uh, getting access to archival material, for instance, or access to particular kinds of resources that in Australia, um, you know, as, as the, the far-flung colony are still in the UK or they're still in America. Um, yeah. You know, which makes it, um, I guess, adds that burden as well to people who have families and other responsibilities in the place that they're living. Absolutely. And you make a plan and then a kid gets hand, foot and mouth disease and you can't do it. Uh, wow. I've had hand, foot and mouth disease a couple of times myself. Oh, my goodness. But I think I've had you them don't have all, it now, so I'm okay now. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's good to know. Well, maybe, I don't know if we, want, we should end on hand, foot and mouth disease. <laughs> no. I think we need to throw to the news now. <laughs> but I want to thank our amazing panel for coming in to speak to us about um, the struggle, well, the eternal struggle of work-life balance. So it was Richard Scully, Felicity Joseph and Joanna Garnett. Thank you so much for coming into the studio today. It was lovely Thanks, to talk Christine. to you. Thank you, Christine. Thanks, Christine. Thank you.